I'm Wade Rausch, and this is Soonish. It's a show about the future, how we think about it, what we can do to shape it, and why our best forecasts and our worst fears are usually wrong. In this inaugural episode of the show, I want to talk about one of the boldest visions of the future ever put down on film, Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. came out in 1968, when I was just one year old, and it offered an incredibly detailed and inspiring forecast for life in the early 21st century. It showed a giant rotating space station and a whole city on the moon. It had astronauts traveling to Jupiter, and one of the main characters was a thinking computer named HAL. By putting the year in the title, the movie tied this forecast to a very specific date. So by the time the actual year 2001 rolled around, how many of Kubrick's predictions had come true? The answer is, almost none. And for years, I've been walking around with this question in my head. Why? Kubrick was famous for his obsessive realism. His collaborator on the script was the science fiction giant Arthur C. Clarke, who introduced the idea of the geostationary satellite nearly 20 years before engineers built the real thing. These were two very smart guys, and nobody has ever tried harder to make the future look real on film. But as a piece of forecasting, the movie was way off target. And the thing I'd like to understand is how the future we actually got turned out to be so different from the future portrayed in the movie. I've been asking smart people I know to help me think it through. And to start, I wanted to share a bit of a conversation I had with my friend Jason Ponton. He's the publisher and editor-in-chief of a magazine called MIT Technology Review. I'm assuming you've seen the movie. Many times. Okay. It's, uh, it's three I'm, movies, though, actually. It's three very good movies, um, but they're, it, in a very Kubrickian fashion, they are only tenuously connected. So there's the, um, there's, there's the birth of you know, tool-making in the beginning with the apes. You have the great scene of um, a vision of the world in 2001 and Pan Am, uh, commercial space flight. Uh, and then you have the, the trip um, to the, the space travel. Um, and they're, they're kind of visually connected, but they really are three separate short movies in their, in their own right. I'll agree with that. But sometime between 1968 and, and the actual 2001, it became clear that we were not going to have um, routine commercial space flight. Uh, by 2001. We were not going to have a, a city on the moon. We were not going to have manned inter- interplanetary uh, spacecraft. We weren't going to have sentient machines. So the expectations that uh, I think that Kubrick and Clark thought were reasonable and plausible in 68 stopped being reasonable and plausible at some point. And I'm just curious what your speculation and thought might be about how and when that happened. And did we lose something along the way? I'm sure we did lose something that optimistic, ambitious vision of the future was based on Apollo, and it came out of the Apollo generation's own uh, experience of having defeated uh, fascism uh, and Japanese imperialism in a great world war. I mean, they thought that we would continue to act collectively uh, to achieve great things, and none of that happened. In fact, the world 
the world went in a different direction and lots of really terrible things happened. Later, we'll talk about some of those terrible things and some good things too. But I wanted to start there because I share this sense Jason expressed that we lost something. By the 1980s, movies like Blade Runner and Terminator had veered toward a much darker vision of the future, where technology evoked not wonder, but fear and despair. And I've always been interested in these changing depictions of the future, because what they really show is what we're hoping for and worrying about here in the present. Here's Jason again. Science fiction has seldom really been about its predictive power. It's a commentary uh, on, on the present. Uh, and present expectations on the future. And um, I always think about these predictions as ways of managing our anxiety and our expectations about the present and an appeal to the present to drive towards the future in a way that the, the author finds more pleasing or palatable or, or less fearful. So here's what I want to do with the rest of today's episode. I want to take a look back at 2001 and try to explain why the movie was so striking for its first audiences. Then I want to look at some of the specific predictions in the film and zero in on the ones that were the most wrong. I'll ask why these predictions turned out so wrong and talk to people who have interesting theories about that. And finally, I want to ask what it all means. You could look back at the spectacle of 2001 and compare it to the world we actually got and conclude that Americans must have become less inventive or less ambitious. But that doesn't seem likely. Instead, maybe we just got sidetracked. Maybe the only thing that was really wrong about 2001 was that it was a little too optimistic about human nature. Let's start by going back to April 3rd, 1968. That's the day MGM released 2001 in major U.S. cities. I have a friend who works at Microsoft named Curtis Wong. He was living in L.A. at the time, and he says he bought his tickets to the movie way in advance. I saw 2001 in 1968. I still have the original program, and I have an a original poster from it, too. Program? They give out programs? I bought the program for a dollar. I've never been to a movie where they gave out programs. I saw the ad in the Los Angeles Times in 1967 that this movie was coming. It was a two-page spread, and I thought, I'm going to see that movie. <laughs> so I bought the program. And do you remember how it affected you? God, everything about that movie just made me want to go into space. I, it was so beautiful, right? It's so, it was so different from so many of these other science fiction movies that we saw about going to space. You know, bringing in the classical music of the Blue Danube and everything, it made space just seem so beautiful. There were a lot of people like Curtis who thought the visuals in the movie were pretty mind-blowing. But the plot? Well, that was a little more of a puzzle. As Jason Ponton was saying earlier, 2001 is really several smaller movies that are tied together very loosely. In case you haven't seen it, here's what happens. The first part of the film is set in Africa, three million years in the past. These two tribes of proto-humans called Australopithecines are hanging out in the desert, and they're kind of living in fear of each other and of the larger animals. Then one day, this big black monolith shows up in the middle of one of their camps. Overnight, this camp becomes much more crafty and combative, and they learn how to use tools to kill animals and each other. 
The implication is that the aliens who put the monolith there have messed with their minds to give them an intelligence upgrade. There's a famous cut where one of the early humans throws a bone hammer into the air, and then suddenly we're in 2001, and we see a satellite floating far above the Earth. The second part of the movie follows a scientist named Haywood Floyd, who's the chairman of the National Council of Astronautics. He's on his way from Earth to the moon to attend some kind of top secret meeting. Floyd takes a Pan Am space plane to a giant circular space station. And then he takes another ship to the moon and lands at a big American moon base called Clavius. We learn that Dr. Floyd is visiting the moon to see another alien monolith that's just been dug up after three million years underground. Just as Floyd and his colleagues are having their photograph taken with the monolith, the object emits a deafening radio beam that, we later learn, was aimed toward Jupiter. The third part of the movie is set on a giant ship called Discovery that's on its way to Jupiter. It's got five astronauts on board, but three of them are in hibernation, and the ship is being run by the other two, Dave Bowman and Frank Poole. They're the strong and silent Neil Armstrong types, and the most vivid character on the ship is actually the ship's computer, Hal. Hal knows that the Discovery's mission is to make contact with the aliens, but he's been ordered to keep that a secret from Dave and Frank. It turns out Hal can't cope with all this subterfuge. After he misdiagnoses an antenna problem, Dave and Frank realize that they might have to disconnect him. And Hal's psychotic defense is to try to murder the whole crew. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. He almost succeeds, but Dave outwits Hal and pulls out his memory chips and ends up as the sole survivor of the mission. After this, things get truly weird. Dave finds another monolith in orbit around Jupiter, and it turns out to be a portal into a hyperspace transportation system. Dave gets sucked in and goes on kind of a space acid trip. He ends up in a fancy hotel room where there's yet another monolith. The aliens change him into a giant glowing fetus called the Star Child, and they send him back to Earth as an ambassador to humanity. Now the first part of the movie about Africa and the fourth part about the trip through the Stargate gives some meaning to the overall plot. But it's the second and third parts that I'm most interested in because that's where we see Kubrick's vision of the future. What made that vision so convincing was that it wasn't a fantasy. It was a careful extrapolation from the kinds of ships that NASA was already building for Apollo. 2000 was a, was a beautiful vision of the future, but it was I think grounded in a way that allowed people in 1968 to say, oh yeah, I can sort of believe that because it wasn't that big of a jump. That's Curtis Wong again. He's speaking as someone who saw the movie when it first came out. But I've also talked with professional futurists and they agree that the movie was believable in part because it was so restrained. I think that Kubrick and Clark were really good at pulling back a bit. You know, they could have made the 2001 future look much more much more spectacular. This is Jamey Cascio. He's an author and a scenario planner, and among many other titles, he's a distinguished fellow at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, California. Yeah, and so, yes, there were things that we look back and say, okay, that really wasn't wasn't possible in the time frame. You know, it, or the you know dis spaceship discovery would have been just ridiculously expensive to do. 
Um, you know, costs more than the, the entirety of the Apollo program. Um, but from, from the perspective of the, of the late 60s, it didn't seem entirely out of reach. It didn't rely on, on magic. Here I want to cite somebody who's probably the world's leading authority on the movie 2001. He's a British science writer named Piers Bazzoni. And three years ago, he published a lavishly illustrated book called The Making of Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. In honor of Hal, I'm going to quote from the book using a computer voice. Kubrick wanted not merely to keep pace with real life, but to anticipate what might happen to space technology in the decades to come. The legacy of all this heartbreaking effort today is that Discovery and the other vehicles of 2001 still look convincing nearly a half century after he approved their final design. Here's something else from a bit later in the book. Kubrick shows us, literally, how the engineers and scientists of the time saw the future shaping up. Much of what he and his advisors conceive turns out to have been startlingly prescient. The film possesses a kind of honorary reality, and its hardware details provide an important historical reference point. I love that phrase, honorary reality. And it's true that the movie still looks convincing. But I think it's a little too generous to call it prescient, especially when you start looking closely at what the movie got right and what it got wrong. So, let's play fact-checking the filmmakers. Prediction number one. Commercial flights to space on Pan American Airlines. Nope. For $250,000, you can buy a ticket on Virgin Galactic for a suborbital flight. But there's no word on when the first flight might happen. And Pan Am, the airline that Dr. Floyd took to the space station, they went out of business in 1991. Which brings us to prediction number two, space stations. The movie got this right, sort of. Today, the International Space Station is more than 100 meters across and has a permanent crew of at least three astronauts and cosmonauts. But the space station in 2001 was 300 meters across and was big enough for hundreds of people. It was so big that it could spin in place to provide artificial gravity. Prediction three, moon bases. Nope. Not a single person has set foot on the moon since 1972, and nobody is likely to go back until the 2020s at the earliest. Prediction 4. Interplanetary travel. Again, no. We've sent dozens of robotic probes to Mars and Venus and the outer solar system, but no human has left Earth orbit since the days of Apollo. NASA's current plan calls for a human mission to Mars sometime in the 2030s. Prediction 5. Tablet computers and the internet. At two points in the movie, we see astronauts using tablets that look like big iPads. In the novelization of the movie, Arthur C. Clarke wrote about something called a newspad, and he said, quote, One could spend an entire lifetime doing nothing but absorbing the ever-changing flow of information from the news satellites, unquote. That sounds a lot like the internet. So, score one for Arthur C. Clarke. And finally, prediction number six. Thinking, talking computers, like how? These days we do have Siri and Alexa and Cortana, but they're not very smart. And we still don't have the first clue about how to make a computer conscious. We don't even know what makes a human conscious. Given that Hal was a psychotic murderer, maybe that's all for the best. Computer intelligence was one area where the movie did veer a little bit toward magic. 
it wasn't even clear why the astronauts in the movie needed a sentient computer as a co-pilot. I, I don't see a need for a general purpose kind of AI that knows everything. Um, and therefore, sentience in that sense is not necessary either. This is Lawrence Lee. He's the senior director of strategy at the Palo Alto Research Center in California, which is part of Xerox and is better known as PARC. There are plenty of AI researchers at PARC, but Lee says none of them are trying to build a general intelligence like HAL. I mean, there, there's no real business value to a general purpose conversation uh, AI. I mean, that, that has general knowledge of the world. And, and it's hard to do. So I think for, for those two reasons, we, you know, it doesn't exist and it may not exist for a long time. So I, I see it being really far out there where, um, you know, in the future, you know, like in Star Trek and other cases where, you know, if we have all the resources in the world and people can do whatever they want and they just need to be entertained, then maybe, uh, you know, that, that might be um, appropriate to have something like that. But until then, we have much more important problems to solve. So either Kubrick and Clark were being wildly optimistic about what it would take to solve the AI problem, or they didn't care and they just needed a homicidal computer in the story to make the trip to Jupiter interesting. In their defense, the 60s was a time when that kind of optimism was pervasive in computer science and aerospace engineering and a lot of other fields. And Kubrick wasn't the only Hollywood storyteller predicting radical progress in the near future. Remember Lost in Space, the TV show that came out in 1965? The setting for that show was supposedly the year 1997. So when and why did this kind of crazy optimism get replaced by something closer to weary pragmatism? Or to turn the question around, why didn't our real history live up to Kubrick and Clark's expectations? Those are the questions I keep coming back to. And my sources keep steering me toward three main explanations. I'm going to call the first explanation, Sputnik, Sputnik sputters, sputters out. out. Basically, this theory says that the golden age of space exploration in the 1960s was a byproduct of the Cold War. Here's Jamey Cascio. We know how much of the Apollo program was predicated on a, you know, racing the Soviets to the moon. And what you saw in the 70s was the, essentially the first signs that the Soviet Union was not doing as well as people thought. You know, they were trying to devote more and more money to simply building missiles when their economy was falling apart. And we lost the, that drive for, for the space program. And so if you think back in, in the late 60s when Kubrick and Clark were creating this story, what they saw was you know, the height of that ferocity of the space race. And just they projected that forward. I ran this theory by Piers Bazzoni, and he agreed with it. He told me by email that he thinks Americans respond best to the stimulus of a crisis, like Pearl Harbor or Sputnik or 9-11. He wrote that the U.S. is, quote, not always very good at building new worlds in the absence of a perceived threat, unquote. I might go farther and say there's almost a hunger in America for outside threats, which goes a long way toward explaining our last election. But let's move on to explanation number two. This one is more about public perceptions of the space program, and I'm going to call it been there, been there, done that. The central idea in this theory is that before you know it, the future actually turns into the present, and then it starts to seem boring. You know, when we look ahead 20 years, 10 years, 50 years, whatever, and we see this exciting, disruptive, terrifying, fascinating future, you have to remember that for the people living in that future, it's their boring everyday reality. Remember, the movie 2001 was showing these advanced space technologies in 1968, before Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Within just two or three years after the movie came out, 
moonwalks and other things that had looked so incredible on the screen were becoming routine. Space travel became normal. You wouldn't, it actually wasn't a big deal when you know, the next Apollo mission went up. You know, some, some guy that we can see on grainy television bounces around on the moon. Maybe he hits a golf ball. You know, maybe he drives the, that little car around. But by and large, we've seen it. Been there, done that. And that's, that, I think, was one of the big things that Kubrick and Clark didn't anticipate. And that's why, in many ways, even, even more so than the Cold War, that's something they didn't grab onto, is, that, is the normality. And what happens when things get normal? And what happens is they start, they are less and less things that you want to throw a lot of money at. There's a third explanation for the gap between the forecast in 2001 and the future we actually got. It's about economics and the nuts and bolts of how technology advances. I'm going to call this theory, the carousel of progress is stuck. Here's a true story. Last spring, my whole family visited the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World in Florida. My mom and dad and I went to see this show in Tomorrowland called The Carousel of Progress. It's an actual carousel where the audience sits down and then the whole auditorium rotates around the central stage. And these audio animatronic figures talk about how technology keeps making their lives better and better. In between acts, while the carousel is moving, the audio animatronic figures sing this goofy song called There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow. So we're on the carousel, and we get through the part about the 1940s. And the song starts, but the carousel doesn't move. The 1940s starts over, and we sit through the whole spiel again. And then the carousel stays stuck. A Disney employee comes on the PA and tells us there's a mechanical problem, and we should stay in our seats until they can fix it. But we're supposed to meet up with my brother and his family at the Splash and Soak station in Fantasyland. So I send him a text message. The carousel of progress is stuck. We're trapped in 1949. We watch the 1940s family brag about their refrigerator and their TV about three more times, and I start to think this song is going to drive me nuts. But finally, the carousel starts up again and carries us back to the present, so we can all meet up in Fantasyland. The reason I tell this story is that some experts say technological progress in America really did get stuck. Except the year when they think it stopped was 1970. The man who's made the strongest case is named Robert Gordon. He's an economist at Northwestern University, and he wrote a massive book that came out last year called The Rise and Fall of American Growth. The story, as Gordon sees it, is that starting around 1870, the U.S. witnessed a whole series of fundamental innovations. For instance, the whole country got electricity. Cities built water systems and sewer systems. Buildings got central heat and air conditioning. A population that was mostly rural became mostly urban. Automobiles became so cheap that almost everyone could afford one. And we built a system of interstate highways to carry them around. Eventually, we invented jet airplanes and then moon rockets. All of these technological changes fueled big gains in productivity and incomes. But Gordon points out that most of these advances were one-time only things. Once the country was electrified, for example, you couldn't electrify it again. And this whole process was basically complete by 1970. Of course, there's been progress in certain areas since 1970, especially in telecommunications and computing. But as Gordon says, quote, some inventions are more important than others, unquote. And getting an iPhone in your pocket just doesn't change your life in the same way as getting electricity in your house or getting a car in your driveway. 
Here's how Jason Ponton puts it. Gordon's theory is that the big advances from the late 19th century, the 1970s, were truly huge things. Uh, refrigeration, antisepsis, highways, uh, airplanes. And that those things were far more generative and productive growth than anything we've done since. He has a, both a chastening and a chastising view about the uh, information technology era. He thinks that the internet and personal computers are relatively small things compared to the big stuff. If Gordon's theory is right, then here's how it might explain why the movie 2001 got things so wrong. Basically, Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick were products of their time. They grew up in an era when huge and rapid gains in technology were normal. So their expectations were pretty high. There's no way they could have known that this era of rapid progress would end within a couple of years after the film came out, or that there would be no more big breakthroughs in rocketry and the other technologies for getting people into space. Here's something Piers Bazzoni wrote in his book about 2001. Kubrick's philosophical exploration was colored in, so to speak, by the industrial expertise of a great nation at the height of its powers. By the time the film was released, America was no longer quite so sure of its desire to conquer other worlds. To me, there's a lot that feels intuitively right about Gordon's theory. So let's agree that Gordon has a point, and that the carousel of progress did get stuck in some ways. Let's also say there's something true about the Sputnik sputters out theory about the end of the Cold War. And let's throw in Jamey Cascio's theory about the banality of the future. Been there, done that. What does that all add up to? I mean, when you put these theories together, it is more than enough to explain why Kubrick and Clark were so far off in their predictions. So, case closed, right? Well, no. I'm interested in more than that. When people like Kubrick and Clark work so hard to get the future right, and then they turn out to be so wrong, maybe the failure isn't theirs. Maybe it's ours. Maybe the problem isn't that all the big inventions have already been invented, but that we've lost the will or the know-how to tackle the big challenges, like defeating fascism in the 40s or going to the moon in the 60s. That would be troubling, since we still have some huge problems to solve. I'm talking about everything from dealing with climate change to fixing economic inequality, to figuring out how we're going to feed 10 billion people. So I want to end the way I started by playing some more of my conversation with Jason Ponton, I went to him not just because he's a science fiction fan or because he edits a technology magazine. He also gave a whole TED talk about this question of whether we can still solve big problems. And at MIT, he created a conference called Solve where technologists and policymakers meet to work through challenges in fields like energy and manufacturing. I asked Jason what he thinks of Gordon's theory that the 21st century just won't see the kinds of advances in technology and productivity that transformed life in the 20th century. I don't, I, I don't buy this for a, a couple of reasons. Um, one is we're fairly sure, uh, as a matter of economics, that we do not capture the full productivity gains uh, of the internet era. So first I would say to Gordon, are you sure that you are measuring everything? Um, but after I'd beaten him up about that, I would say, how can you know the future? And I would point to two particular trends that I think are going to be every bit as big as antisepsis, refrigeration, highways, uh, and airplanes. Uh, and, and one of those is artificial intelligence. 
So the the extraordinary breakthroughs since 2010 in machine learning and specifically in deep learning, I think are going to have a bigger impact upon labor and work than anything which occurred in the 19th century. Uh, and the second big shift that I think is going to be every bit as big as his large trends is gene editing through tools like CRISPR, Cas9, and Talons. When we can treat um, genetics as editable code. Could we see another era of progress at the same pace that we saw during what Gordon calls the special century? I think so, and I can tie this back to your original question about why we can't solve big problems. In one sense, I've, I'm very optimistic. We have very powerful tools that could be employed to grow wealth, solve big problems, and expand human possibilities. And they include AI and uh, gene editing, but are not limited to them. Um, there are smart people in extraordinary universities and in corporate research centers and at places like Google X who are powerfully committed to addressing these great challenges of the day, these civilizational scale problems. We have the tools, but there also needs to be a, a, new, a new feeling of, about our common humanity, that we want to go and solve these problems. We have to want the future. And that occurs at the level of ordinary citizens. It requires political leadership and it requires all the parties who will be complicit in solving these big problems to come together with a, a common desire to address them. We don't lack for the tools. We don't, there aren't fewer smart people. And we haven't become less good as, as human beings. What we've lost is our, our belief in our collective humanity. In the end, I think what makes 2001 a great movie is that it did believe in this collective humanity. The movie wasn't about the aliens or the monolith. It was about us, growing up as a species, to the point where we can leave the Earth, reach other planets, and even give consciousness to our machines. If we work together, we might still make these things happen, just not quite so soon. Soonish is written and produced by me, Wade Rausch. The show's theme is by Graham Gordon Ramsey. Additional music this week by Kai Engel and Philip Weigel. The computer voice was provided by Amazon Polly. If you like the show, there are three small things you can do that will help to brighten our future. The first is to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. The second is to rate and review Soonish on iTunes, which really helps other people find the show. And third and equally important, please help to spread the news about the show via Facebook or Twitter or just old-fashioned word of mouth. You can follow the show yourself on Twitter at Soonish Podcast. And I love to get your email comments at info at 
For more information about the people and ideas in this episode, you can go to the show's website at soonishpodcast.org, where this week I've also posted my full interviews with Jamey Cascio and Jason Ponton. Special thanks to Jamey and Jason and my other guests this week, Curtis Wong, Lawrence Lee, and Piers Bazzoni. Thanks as well to everyone who helped to get Soonish launched, including Graham Gordon Ramsey, Ibi Caputo, Cynthia Graber, Mitch Hanley, John Barth, Celia Ramsey, Kent Rasmussen, Ellen Leance, Luke Timmerman, Tracy Kutchlow, Wing Nan, Jessica Abel, my family in Alaska and Michigan, and the folks at the PRX Podcast Garage and the Sonic Soiree. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back with a new episode soonish.